Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 1 John chapter 2. The enemy of joy. Throughout the book of 1 John to this point, we have seen several statements of purpose. 1 John 1 verse 3. John said that his purpose was that they might have fellowship with God and with man. 1 John 1 verse 4, that their joy might be full. 1 John 2 verse 1, that they sin not. John's purpose is not a mystery in this epistle. We have, in fact, keyed in on that purpose of joy because we've seen how these various purposes connect to each other doctrinally. Not sinning, is how you stay in fellowship. Being in fellowship is what produces joy. To that end, joy, as it were, sits atop the pyramid of purposes as the ultimate prize to be won by those who align themselves with what John has taught about aligning with Jesus Christ, about walking with Jesus Christ, about following Christ. Today, however, we're introduced to something new, but also not new. Kind of like last week. Remember, last week John said, there's an old commandment and then there's a new commandment. And in the same sort of a way, I speak to you this week of, of, as it were, new information, which is not actually not, not new information to us. This week we're going to cover John's first actual exhortation, his first actual command to the readers of this epistle. One of the more well-known passages of Scripture, not just in 1 John, but one of the more well-known passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible, and for good reason. But this command will first begin with some lead-up from John, and that lead-up is actually quite important as well. It's very interesting also. It is almost as if John knows that what he's about to command is very direct, confrontational, maybe in some senses hard to hear. And in another sense, he may actually anticipate that his readers may not understand why it is that John is telling them this. Not necessarily that they would be offended at it per se, but that they might not understand its relevance to their lives or to the direction in which they have been heading. So that we find ourselves, we first find over the next couple of weeks, uh, well, this week and next week, not, not so much the week after that, but first we're going to see John reassuring his readers, giving them the confidence of, of what he knows of them and where he understands their standing to be in their faith with Jesus Christ. And then second, we're going to cover this this week as well, he's going to command them, exhort them regarding the necessity of rejecting the wickedness of this world. And then finally, and we'll think of this next week, warning them against those false teachers who it would seem were actively involved in trying to subvert biblical truth in their spiritual lives. And if these false teachers were to be successful, if they would be successful in subverting this command, the command is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, then they would also then be successful at causing these believers to uh, rest in sin or to step into sin in their lives and thus stripping from them fellowship and from that stripping from them joy. Hence the concept, the enemy of joy. So we look first of all at John's words of assurance to these readers. And we find this in verses 12 through 14, which says this, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven. Excuse me, forgiven you for his name's sake. 
I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because ye have known the father. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. So we find this very interesting construction here. I write unto you because. This is a statement of reason. It's a statement of intent. It is likely not directly related uh, to the whole epistle, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but as I just mentioned, it seems intended rather to reassure the readers of John's intent before he exhorts them, commands them, warns them, so that they do not misunderstand the love and the concern which undergirds the statement that he's about to make. And John breaks this reasoning into, as it were, four parts. And these four parts are kind of directed toward three different subsets of the reading audience. So he says, first, I write unto you, little children. And then second, to fathers. And then third, to young men. And then fourth, seemingly back to little children in our King James Bibles, but it actually is a different Greek word that undergirds it, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. As it relates to each one of these groups, John reasons for each of them to receive the words that he's about to give, and, and his reasons for it are varied. For little children, and, and this first little children we'll talk about in a minute, is a broader idea. But for those little children, John tells us that he is writing these words unto them because their sins are forgiven for his Namesake. And the hymn here is quite clearly, as we look back in our context, Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm writing these things to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Notice here he is assuring them that he is not writing these things because he has any doubt that they have accepted Christ as their Savior. He is not writing these things because he has any doubt that their sins are forgiven. He knows their sins are forgiven, and he is assuring them that he knows their sins are forgiven, that they have this confident testimony of faith. And then he says, for the fathers... I'm writing these words unto you because you have known him that is from the beginning. Well, if we go back to 1 John 1, that which is from the beginning, and then we go back to John 1, 1 through 14, we find that this one who is from the beginning is, again, Jesus. And then he says to the young men, I write these words because you have overcome the wicked one. The wicked one, of course, being the devil, Satan, the great deceiver. And then finally, little children again, saying that he's writing these words because they have known the Father. Now, each of these are descriptions reflecting confidence. Confidence that the people under whom John is writing are believers, that they know the gospel, that they have engaged themselves in overcoming spiritual warfare already. Now, as we mentioned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that phrase, little children, is not a phrase of biological family, but rather of spiritual family. John is writing to a group of believers, and we trace that, if you recall, in 1 John 2, verse 1, when he first used the term little children, and we saw how little children, as it's used, that same Greek word throughout the Bible, is used to speak of those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so there is a relationship between individuals by virtue of their their, their commonality in the faith. And here we find little children used, and we, we do see it used two times in this passage, but as I mentioned, only sort of. The word for little children in verse 12 is a different Greek word than the word little children in verse 13. The, in verse 12, this is the same word that we found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 
which we concluded from cross-references to be a reference to the fact that these readers were in the faith, that they had followed Jesus Christ, followed the gospel of Jesus Christ into salvation. The word in verse 13 for little children is much more like the word father and like the word young men. And what I mean is all three of those words, father, young men, and little children are, for lack of better term, more biological in description. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's speaking necessarily to fathers as in, I'm only speaking to those of you that have biological children, or young men as in, I'm only speaking to those of you who are on the younger side of manhood, or little children as in, I'm only speaking to the little tykes here, but rather as he first begins by saying little children in that broad term that we've already studied that helps us understand he's speaking to believers, then he is categorizing those believers into three subsets. And the three subsets are fathers, young men, and little children. Fathers likely relating to the elders of the church, those who have been well-established in the faith, those who are leading the church, the, 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 the fathers of, the, of that, that faith or the fathers of that church. Young men, perhaps being those who are, are not elders, but are also not um, infant believers, as it were. These would be the group of steady, faithful laymen in the church, the core of the is strength, the core of the church's activity. And then you have the little children related to those who would be young believers in the faith, those who don't know the faith very well, uh, those who are still learning, those who are still really stepping into it, getting their feet wet, trying to understand their relationship to these truths. And this makes sense practically as well, based upon the various descriptions that John uses. Within the church, he says, the fathers, the elders are in their years of wisdom. They have known the one who is from the beginning. They serve the church as the stable foundation for direction and doctrine like Titus 2 calls them to do. For the young men, they are in the prime of their spiritual lives. So what, are the, what, what is John naturally going to connect them to? Well, is going to naturally connect them to overcoming the wicked one. They're in those spiritual battles. They are fighting those spiritual battles. They're on the front lines for the church. They're on the front lines of their spiritual life right now. They are engaged in the active way. And then, of course, we see here little children. And little children, they're new to the whole thing, right? They have been initiated into a relationship with the Father through the Son. And as we continue in 1 John 2 next week, you're going to find it very, this very, very important connection. He will continue and he will say that, that you do not get to the Father but through the Son, right? And so this idea that you have known the Father means that they have stepped into and initiated this relationship and they are in this place. Now in verse 14, we witness a bit of a transition, to this point, verses 12 and 13, Paul has initially, he's referenced them with, I write unto you. I spoke a couple of weeks ago in a minor grammar lesson about the difference between a present tense verb indicating an ongoing action, right? And then what at the time, a perfect tense verb indicating a past completed action with continuing results. And I gave you a little bit of a Greek lesson there. I don't expect any of you necessarily to remember it. I, didn't, I wasn't asking you to remember it. I wanted you to understand it so that you could orient yourself to the truth that I was teaching. But I'm going to ask you to recall some of that to reorient yourself to something this evening. We used this previously in verse 3 to distinguish the contemporary knowledge uh, of the person that has confidence that they are in Christ with the results-based knowledge of you are confident that you're in Christ, but that confidence is magnified when you are living in the results of your faith. And that was what we said in verse 3. Well, in verses 12 and 13, John says, I write unto you, 
And that's that same present tense idea. I am writing this unto you now, indicating that the reasons he is giving for this are rooted in what, what he's currently writing and, and what, what he knows about them. Well, then the tense changes, you notice, in verse 14. He says in verse 14, I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men. And in this case, we see a change here from the present tense to what's called the aorist tense. And if you recall from that little chart I put up last time, which you probably don't, the aorist tense is undefined past action. It's, it's outside of time. It's not speaking to time. It's speaking simply to something that is. John is describing in verse 14 something which he has previously written. And this could mean a couple of different things. So he says, I, I'm writing this now, and then I have written this. Well, one of the things it could mean is that John wrote something else to them that he's referencing, some other thing that he's written to them in the past. If so, that would mean that's something that we don't have, because this is first John, right? Or it's the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John was not written to them particularly, right? It, it is... It, 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 doesn't seem to be. Maybe it is. It could be. It's not addressed to anyone, but we don't have any confidence that that is exactly what, what was written or, or that he was writing to the same group. John's gospel is not addressed to any group. It doesn't imply that the gospel he is writing to is for any other reason than that its readers might be saved. It doesn't really align with what John says here, that he has written something unto them because they've known him that is from the beginning, because if they already knew him from the beginning, then he doesn't need to give them the gospel of John, because the gospel of John is how to know him that is from the beginning. So I personally think what makes more sense is that John is distinguishing here, if I may put it this way, the part from the whole. And please take careful note that this is my opinion. I cannot substantiate this interpretation with anything else other than the words on the page, which John admittedly does not explain in full. But what I mean is this. It seems plausible to me that when John speaks of what he has written, he is speaking about the whole epistle that they're currently reading. I have written this whole thing to you. And that because the fathers are well established in their faith in Christ and the young men are strong and the words abide in them and they have overcome the wicked one. In other words, he has taken it upon himself to write unto them because he has confidence in their relationship with Christ, in their love for God, for God's word, and for sound doctrine. And this is to be slightly contrasted with what he is about to say. I am writing these next few things to you because I know that you're established in the faith. You are fighting the good fight. And also there are these young ones. Notice he doesn't add the young ones to verse 14. He does the fathers and the young men again, but he doesn't repeat little ones. And much to the contrary here. So, so perhaps he is saying then, it, all of 1 John, I have written all of this unto you. But then in verses 12 through 17, I am writing this unto you. Specifically, uh, so that uh, knowing that you are established in the faith, that you're fighting the good fight. But there's something that you all, including the little ones, need to hear. All of you need to hear this. And all of that to tell us this. What we're about to talk about here in verses 15, 16, 17 is something that we all need to hear. There's no one that is well established enough in the faith, nor is there anyone too young in the faith to hear what this is. Now, it's about being in the faith. 
This is written to those who are in the faith unapologetically, to those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. But if you have, John says this next thing is for you. John is making it clear that the command and the warning he's about to give is not rooted in his lack of confidence that they are believers, much to the contrary. He has full confidence that they're believers and they still need to hear it. So he's cutting off at the past the idea that anyone would read these verses and say, you know what, this isn't for me. This is for that guy. I hope so-and-so is listening as, as John is reading this letter. Nope, 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 nope. Are you listening? Because this is for you. The essential truths which every believer needs to hear. This would be akin to me getting behind the pulpit and preaching some doctrine and me prefacing my message by saying, I preach unto you every week, church, and I preach unto you every week because I know that you love God and I know that you're being faithful to him and I know that you want to know his word. And I'm about to preach on a particular subject and this subject is a little heavy and this subject is one that you might not want to hear and it's going to push you and it's going to convict you and it's going to stretch you and it's going to ask something of you. But I'm not saying this to you tonight because, you're, because I'm angry at you or because you are a failure or because I don't think you love God. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. I'm doing it because I know you love God so you will want to live this. And then, I, of course, I would go on to preach on that topic, which might be heavy and might make people feel uncomfortable. But I do so because of my confidence in you and my desire to see you grow, not because I lack confidence in you, not because I want to tear you down. So that's kind of the idea that John, I think, is espousing here in these verses. And I hope that distinction makes sense. Now, one more note just in passing before we move on, something which I will come back to in our time of application Notice that within the spiritual allusions John gives here to various people groups, he references only men, fathers, young men, and then little children, which is in the masculine, and so by extension as well. This is most certainly not because women were not getting saved or could not be saved or had no part in the church or uh, no impact or anything of the sort. Not because John did not want women to read this or to consider this content in his epistle. But as John writes what he's about to write, there is a keen recognition of the fact that in the church, in any age, it is the men of that church that are going to set the spiritual tone. They're going to fight those spiritual battles. They're going to safeguard spiritual purity within the church. And so I do believe that John is very much speaking this way for a particular reason. And we'll come back to that. Uh, in a little bit. So let's move on to what, John, what it is that John writes unto them. Verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We find here a very familiar formula compared to what John has written throughout the epistles. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth, right? Very, very black and white. Uh, if we say that we have no sin, we are a liar. If we hate our brother, we walk in darkness and our eyes are blinded. These are statements that John has made to this point. Dogmatic statements that show us that our relationship to God and others is going to dictate the manner in which we are related to God in Christ. Not saying that we're not believers, that we're not Christians, that we haven't accepted Christ, that we're not going to heaven, but only that these things will strip us of our essential fellowship and so strip us of essential joy and the ability to be walking in that place that we ought to be walking with God, to be living in the eternal life that God has promised for us one day. And here we are again. 
If, a, if I love the world, if the love of the world abides in me, then a love of the Father does not abide in me. And in that we find the same formula, we also find the same caveat. Keep it in context. We know John is not saying that if you exhibit a love for the world, then you're not a believer. Why do we know that? Verses 12, 13, and 14, we just established that. Like, like in this message, we don't even have to go back to last, you don't even have to go on YouTube to look at last week's message. This message, just a few moments ago, we saw that, right? John just spent three verses telling his readers that he has full confidence in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. He didn't say this just to tell them they aren't believers. That's not how, that's not how anything works. Much to the contrary. He told them this. He, he, he made this statement those statements to give them confidence in their standing in Christ so that they wouldn't get distracted by what John is actually trying to tell them. And this is the same message that Jesus gave to his disciples, perhaps most eloquently, in Matthew 6, 24. Christian, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. At any given moment, you are serving someone. At any given moment, you are serving something. Every action is rooted in something. And because no man is without sin, and because sin is a great and powerful foe, you will not always walk in the light, and you will not always serve God. But what we need to be careful about is that the fruit of our lives express, do the fruit of our lives, does the fruit of our lives, excuse me, express our love for this world or for the Father. And when our lips express a love for the Father, is the fruit of our life backing up what our lips are saying? Isn't that what our memory verse for the month has contemplated? Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Is the manner in which you are living your life, is what is in your heart commiserate? with what is on your lips. And why is this so important? Because in the, next ch- in the next verses, which we'll cover next week, John is going to talk about false teaching. And he's going to be pointing to people who say they love the Father, but whose lives bear no fruit of it. They say they love the Father, but e- not even just in works, but in, in words, in, in, in their statements about Jesus Christ himself, they deny him. And so this is what he's setting the foundation for. And this was a message to all of these believers, the fathers, the young men, the little children. They needed to hear it, and it will set them up mentally to receive John's message about false teachers, not covered today, covered next week. But there's still more that needs to be said about this idea of loving the world. Because this statement is a bit ambiguous, isn't it? I love my wife and children. My wife and children are very much rooted in this world, right? They, they live in this world with me. My relationship to them is an earthly relationship that I have with them. I hope that they'll be in heaven with me one day. For four of them, I have this confidence. There's still a few more to go. And I love them, but I certainly can't take them with me. Their destination is their choice. I love my country. But my country is very much rooted in this world, right? I will not graduate to the United States of heaven. I love my state. I love my city. The same goes for them. It's very much rooted in this world. 
I love this church building. This has been the center of my ministry for 11 years now. There's some sentimental, there's a sentimental connection that I have to this building. But this, very, this building is very much of this world. So does that mean I'm out of fellowship with God because I have affection on some things in this world? Does this love, do these loves conflict with my love for God and thus hinder my capacity for fellowship? Well, maybe, but no, that's not what John is saying here. Instead, he's defining what he means by the world in the next two verses. He says in verses 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. First, we see more specifically three things that define the world that John is exhorting us not to place our affection on, not to love. First, the lust of the flesh, uh, the desire of the carnal part of, in this case, because he's writing to believers, the carnal part of the believer's nature, which operates in contradiction to the spiritual part of the believer's nature, that there's a battle happening within the heart of every believer. If, you're, if, if a person is not a believer, they, then, then they're, they're, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. There's only the carnal part, right? No matter how much good they're trying to do, there's only the carnal part. But for the believer, there is a struggle between the spiritual and the carnal. And the lust of the flesh is that carnal part, the carnal desires of our heart. The lust of the eyes, the desire for material, temporal, physical, which operates in contradiction to the spiritual or the eternal, the, the, the things that we see, right? Versus the things that we can't see. The things that we see are temporal. The things that we do not see are eternal. Second Corinthians 4, I think. And then the pride of life. A desire for those things which elevate me and operate in contradiction to that which elevates God. Where the things of my life override the things that elevate God. And with each of these definitions that I summarized for you, more specifically, what is it about that thing which is wrong? Well, the thing that is wrong about each of these is that they're operating in contradiction to God, above God, in, in opposition to God. And this is what John says in verse 17, that these are things, the things which are in the world are things which are earthbound, things which will pass away, things that you can't take with you, but that if you invest yourself in wholeheartedly, you are now investing yourself in that which is temporal and earthly, but that will not redound unto eternity. And these are contrasted with the things that are defined by God's will. Things which, while done on this world, are done for the world that is to come. And so they abide forever. And this forms the general template for us to understand what is and is not the world. Let's talk about each one briefly then. Beginning with the lust of the flesh. Human impulses, desires, and emotions are not themselves bad, in, in themselves bad things. The problem is when we, as humans, submit ourselves to those impulses, desires, and emotions to be fulfilled in a manner that is contradictory to God's design for you. God designed us to get hungry. And he designed us to get hungry as a means by which to remind our bodies that we need fuel to sustain ourselves. God designed the fulfillment of hunger through eating to be enjoyable, not only as a means of 
encouraging mankind to survive, but also as a means to connect mankind to the nature of Jesus Christ as the full satisfaction as our living bread. That as I eat, I find in it pleasure and I find in it satisfaction so that when Jesus came and he said, I am that bread of life, we could relate ourselves to this idea that Jesus Christ can fulfill all of our needs. And then beyond that, there's one more reason we find in Ecclesiastes when Solomon writes, which is to say that eating is a pleasure so that we can see it as a gift from God. So these are wonderful things. This impulse that God has given us unto hunger, the impulse to eat, is a good thing. And it has a God-given design. But if I submit myself to this impulse and allow it to control me, allow it to drive me, I become intemperate. I become gluttonous. I damage the body through the very thing that God has designed to sustain the body. I take the thing that God has designed to show his pleasure unto me and to give me pleasure, and I turn it into a vice. And so I have yielded the virtue of that human impulse and have allowed it to be twisted into a vice by overeating. I have now placed my affection upon an impulse of the material world at the expense of the impulse of the Holy Spirit to be temperate, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and nine is temperance, right? Self-control. And please take note of the distinction between doing something in a manner which God has designed and prescribed, or abusing that thing through the lust of the flesh. And the same can be said for every human impulse. We talk about hunger, but we can also talk about thirst. We can talk about sexuality. We can talk about amusement. We can talk about all of these things. God has, made, has given us emotions. God has given us impulses. God has given us the emotion of anger, given us the emotion of jealousy, given us these things. But when they are used outside of his design, they become a problem. When they are submitted to him, they're okay. When they are used outside of his design, when we pursue the lusts of our flesh in these things, it becomes a problem. When we are submitted to the spirit of God, then we use them the way he has designed and they are actually a virtue. They, they, they are a part of what we are given in this life. And for we who are in Christ, we know God and love God, and, and this is what we know full well. There is no natural God-given impulse exercised in perversion outside of God's design that God has not made provision for within his design. And I say natural and God-given. I don't mean the sin nature. I mean, I mean the God-given part. And then man takes those things, and they get twisted, and they get perverted, and they get confused, and that's the lust of the flesh. When exercised within God's design, however, these human impulses are maximally fulfilling because they operate in the way God designed them to operate. Now, the essence of the teaching is that the lust of the flesh is when we exercise a natural, God-given human impulse outside of God's intended design and ordained structure of fulfillment. That's the lust of the flesh. In Christian, there is not a single human impulse which is better enjoyed or, or realized by indulging in the lust of the flesh than when it is submitted to the design that God has intended for it. The lust of the flesh might afford more temporal, more immediate indulgement, indulgence and fleeting happiness, but at the expense of 
joy. When I live within the boundaries of God's design, I reap the fullest of God's intended benefits. Without any negative repercussions upon myself or upon others, upon body or upon soul. So don't love the lust of the flesh. That's a perversion of God's impulse. Love the Lord. Second, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, we might understand, is often a precursor to the lust of the flesh. Where the natural human impulse for that which is appealing to the eye, that which is comely, that which is beautiful, that which is alluring, can in fact drive my human appetite. And we might best understand this concept through the difference between the way the material world is built and the way the spiritual world is built. We often speak here about the paradoxes of Christianity. And when I talk about the paradoxes of Christianity, it's in reference to the way that God thinks and operates, which is often in pretty dramatic contrast to the way that humans in our sinful state naturally think and operate. So the Bible says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. The Bible states that to gain my life, I must lose it. The Bible states that if I want to be exalted, I must lower myself. Because he that lowers himself will be exalted, and he that exalts himself shall be abased. These are paradoxes, right? Die so that I can live. Humble myself, lower myself so that I can be exalted. Paradoxes. That my call is to look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. It's a paradox. I live in this physical world, and yet the call is that I would see with spiritual eyes. There are any number of passages in the Bible which call us to a perspective whereby we do not condition our understanding of circumstances and actions based upon the things that our senses tell us, but rather upon the promises of the God who created us. Thus, we endure affliction, knowing that these afflictions purchase for us a good reward. How crazy is that? How crazy is that that we endure affliction with joy? Things are going rough. And we're joyful. Why? Because we know that it's purchasing for us a good reward in eternity. That's not something that you see with your physical eyes, that you feel with your physical fingertips. That's something which you know with your spirit. That which is not seen. The eternal things. We love our enemies. Knowing that this love will yield eternal dividends. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them which despitefully use you and persecute you. How is that a thing? Well, because we know that there's an eternity, and that's what matters. And this perspective gives us the strength to be faithful. This stands in direct contradiction to the nature of the lust of the eyes, whereby we are submitted not to our impulses like the lust of the flesh, but rather to our senses. Difference between impulses and senses. Defined here by the sense that we call vision, the lust of the eyes, but which is perhaps much better to say, defined by appearances. And the exhortation not to love the lust of the eyes is an exhortation to see the world as God sees it. And again, we speak not of the natural God-human impulses to admire strength and stature and beauty, but only rather that we do not exercise these impulses outside of God's design or put them above God's wisdom. I can, I can pursue excellence. I can appreciate beauty. I can appreciate design. I can appreciate those things, but not elevate them above God. 
so that I can see the beauty of a great man-made feat of engineering or of art or some other excellence. But if I devote my life to that thing at the expense of the things of the life to come, well, then I have succumbed to the lust of the eyes, to my senses as the primary focal point of my decisions or of my priorities. I've gone beyond God's design and submitted myself to a perversion of God's design, which will leave me undoubtedly empty in the end. And this leads us to the final of the three, the pride of life. This is perhaps the easiest of the three elements which are in the world for us to grasp practically. As with the first two attributes, so too with this one, God has made humanity to be like himself. And so mankind is creative. Mankind is inquisitive. Mankind does seek unto excellence, and he loves excellence, and these are good things. And yet, as with the other two, so too with this characteristic, God has created boundaries within which these attributes are designed to be worked in complete alignment with his character. But this design can be perverted. It can be perverted through a desire within me to exalt myself at the expense of others, most notably at the expense of God, or to seek praise and recognition for myself rather than to direct my praise unto the God that created me, unto the one who enabled me to do such things. And once again, the whole scriptures is filled with this concept epitomized in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when at once I begin to operate in a manner that seeks unto self, self-recognition, self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, or even beyond self, the exaltation of the human and of the temporal and of the material above the spiritual and divine, taking the things of this life and exalting them, I have gone outside of God's design for this drive unto excellence and success as God defines it unto his glory and I have entered into a context of pride seeking glory for myself a glory which rightly belongs to God and God alone. This God-ordained operating procedure for life the context for life within which I am called to align and by which I will be able to experience the fullest fulfillment of human desire without any cost of the rebellion of perversion is to seek into the highest heights of excellence that through that excellence I might bring the utmost glory to God. That my every waking moment, my every ambition, my every success serves to magnify the Savior who gave his life to me, for me, who gave me life and breath and endowed me with the talent and capacity to accomplish the tasks that he has given to me in excellence. And when we talk about the world as your enemy, when we say love not the world, this is what we mean, what John defines here. It does not mean that the people of the world are your enemy. Love not the world, okay, so don't love the people of the world. No, 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 they're your mission field. They're not your enemy. It does not mean material possessions. You have to go and sell everything that you have and go live somewhere in the highest hill uh, with no possessions. No. They're inanimate objects, most of which in themselves have no intrinsic morality. But the direction and the philosophy of humanity through these things, the appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life through these things, these directions, these philosophies, this inherent spirit, if you will, this is the enemy of the people of God. And this is the enemy of joy. And so the call is to love not the world. To place our affections on the things of the spiritual. 
and the eternal rather than the material and temporal. Now let's apply. First, let's talk about the relationship between verses 12 through 14 and 15 through 17. In verses 12 through 14, John took great care to assure the readers of his confidence in their relationship with Jesus Christ. There are two loves contrasted here. Love of the world, love of the Father. And the text will go on in verse 23 to say that to deny the character of Jesus Christ is to deny the Father himself. So we see that Jesus plays very importantly into this. But to receive the Son is to receive the Father and the promise of the Father, which is the gift of eternal life. To this end, John is not telling us here that these are things that we must do to earn God's favor. Much to the contrary, what John has already told us, what he has made abundantly clear, is that no man is able to earn God's favor, but that Jesus has already earned God's favor for us. What we cannot do in that we are sinful Christ already did when he was on the cross, right? That's what Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian, the call to not love the world is not a call unto personal discipline. It is not a call to take all the fun things that are in the world and say, well, I don't get to do any of the fun things in the world because I have to do the boring things of God. This is the wrong perspective on it altogether. Much to the contrary, what we are finding here, what John says here, and what we find in so many of the epistles in the New Testament and the gospel is this. Why would you go to the weak and beggarly elements of the world when you have something so much more precious, so much greater, so much more real, something that will not just last, it's not like cotton candy that'll sit on your tongue for a moment and then be gone, and the flavor's gone, and it doesn't even satisfy your hunger, but rather there is something, there is some meat that you can consume that will satisfy you. So this is not a call to earn favor with God either so that you can hope to be right with him. Jesus already did that work on the cross. Jesus paid that debt which you could not pay. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done to earn favor with God, but according to his mercy, God shed upon us through Jesus Christ's death on the cross that we then enter into his grace and being justified by his grace, we are made heirs to the hope of eternal life. Christ and Christ alone. To this end, the call here is to hold fast to that which you, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, have been given. Love it. Cling to it. See it for what it is. See the blessings of the eternal as the riches that they actually are. And when we do so, like the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The fact of the matter is, when you're walking with Christ, when you're abiding in Him, when you're living in that place of joy and peace and, and, and rejoicing, the things of earth are pretty insufficient. They're pretty temporal. They don't hold a lot of value. Here, today, gone tomorrow. To this end, we have this call. Not to fall for the weak and utterly inadequate temporal promises of the things which this life has to offer at the expense of the joy that God has ordained for you through abiding in Him. 
Don't fall into that trap, Christian. And that's the trap of many false teachers, which is where John's going to go next. But before we close, I want to go in one more direction, and I mentioned that I would do so. Rooted in our previous observation that John is speaking to fathers, to young men here, to the men that were reading this, to the men of the church. Men, I want to speak to you for a minute. And I don't say this to the exclusion of women in the sense of sound doctrine or biblical doctrine, but men, you need to hear this specifically. There is a war being waged and you are on the front lines. If a love for the world is going to be defeated in our hearts, in our families, and in our church, it will be through the young men who put on the armor of God, who reject the lies of the devil, and who represent Christ, who go out and who slay that, slay those dragons. Our young men are, as it were, the spiritual knights of a very dark age. And if you don't fight, who will? And if it's not now, then when? We can kind of get confused sometimes and think that Christianity, you know, we, 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 we get this picture of what Christianity is. We get this picture of what, what, what Jesus was. And, and uh, it can be a picture, and, and Jesus is love, right? Jesus was forgiving. But when we see these things as it relates to Jesus Christ, we, get, we, 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 we have a, a, a sanitized Christianity that has taken these things well beyond what the Bible presents in them. The Bible does tell us, turn the other cheek. The Bible does emphasize forgiveness, but these are not characteristics of weakness. These are characteristics of strength under control. These are characteristics of those who have trained and directed their strength in a particular direction unto a particular end goal. And that, th- those are the terms of battle. Those are the terms of discipline. Those are the terms where we have to be focused, we have to be determined, we have a goal in mind, we have a mission ahead of us, and we're going to go and we are going to accomplish that purpose. There is a spiritual foe, and it's a great spiritual foe. That spiritual foe is represented in false teachers that are around us. That spiritual foe is represented in the wickedness that is around us, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But we have something better we have something true, we have something genuine. And men, if we don't fight, who will? If we don't get out on the front lines and do something, who will? If we don't proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, who will? If we don't live it, who will? If we don't live by those principles, who will? If we don't put our money where our mouth is, and I don't mean that literally, what I mean is if we don't act, if we say that we have faith, show me thy faith without thy works, I will show thee my faith by my works. If our works aren't in line with what we say, we believe, then what are we doing? If we, as those who are spiritual leaders in this church, spiritual leaders in their family, if you are not going to step up and lead, if you are not going to show what it is to be a godly man, if you are not going to show what it is to believe the Lord, to read his word, to to understand, to, to practice the things of the faith, then who's going to? If not us, who? If not now, when? When are we going to step up and do it? John writes here and he says, fathers, I'm writing to you. Young men, I'm writing to you. Little children, I'm writing to you. And I'm not writing to you because I don't believe that you have Christ. I'm not writing to you because I'm not convinced that you are in, that you know the Father. I'm writing these things to you because I am convinced of this. Now you've got to hear this thing. Don't love the world. Love the Father. The world is a great proponent of happiness. Did you know that? 
Sin will make you happy, Christian. Make no mistake. But sin will only make you happy according to sin's definition of happiness. See, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, our sin nature, it pulls a little trick on us. It says, you do this thing, you'll be happy. We do that thing, and, that we are, and then we are happy by sin's definition of happiness. But we walk away in shame. We walk away unfulfilled. We walk away saying, I did that thing. And yes, there was temporal happiness, but what it left over was guilt. What it left over was uh, uh, torn apart relationships. What, it, what, what, what is left over is, is nothing of virtue or of value. That, that, that's the world's happiness, but that's not joy. That's not joy. I'm going to go ahead and give the illustration. My Tuesday crowd has heard it maybe 30 times in the past half year, but I'm going to give it anyway. When I'm eating healthy, when I'm exercising, my clothes fit because I'm at a proper weight. I'm at my happiest, right? I feel good. I have more energy. It's great. Then I see that bucket of cookies. And my flesh tells me that bucket of cookies will make you happy. And you know what? It will. It will. But make no mistake, it's a very different type of happy, isn't it? It's a happy of flavor. It's a happy of pretty fast satisfaction. But at the same moment that that flavor makes me happy, the rest of me agonizes over that which that very temporal, very limited happy is inflicting upon my long-term happy. Both are happiness. One is very temporal, very fleeting, and comes at a cost. The other is much more substantive. The other is much more desirable. If I can only remember that when I see those cookies before me. When the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh is calling unto me, will I remember it in that moment? And yet, even as I say this, the irony of the human condition is that I still eat cookies. And I still want cookies. Now, cookies aren't sin, right? But carry this over into sin. I always use that illustration because I have this problem with cookies, right? Young men, sin can make you happy. But it is a happiness defined by the standard that sin itself sets. It's a happiness only for those who don't know any better. It's the best thing for those who have never experienced the best thing. I haven't given this illustration in a long time. When I was in college, we had a buffet there. And because of the nature of a buffet, you know, they're putting a lot of food out for a whole lot of people. And there's never once I can remember where I didn't find a, 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 my bananas there on a, on a breakfast morning to be anything but completely green. But I wanted a banana every morning. So I would get that banana and I would start eating that banana. And that banana was crunchy and that banana was green. It was a crunchy green banana. And so for, for, for dozens of days in a row, I would eat one of those crunchy green bananas, which never got to be ripe simply because when you have a buffet and you have that many people, they're putting out the crunchy green bananas. And I'm eating those crunchy green bananas. And you know what? I would get up in the morning and I'd say, wow, I, I'm looking forward to having a banana this morning. And I'd enjoy that crunchy green, green banana. But then I'd get home. And I'd get home and there would be some bananas on the counter and, and they were, it was really strange. They'd be yellow. And I'd say, you know what? It's morning. I'm craving a banana. And I'd eat that banana and I'd remember, oh yeah, 
For months, I've eaten those crunchy green bananas, and I've said, wow, this is a good banana, only because I didn't remember what a real banana is supposed to taste like. And when a banana is not crunchy and green, it's actually a lot better. A little less sour, a little more sweet. Better consistency, a lot better banana. Sin is the crunchy green banana. If it's all you've ever experienced, it's okay. But once you've experienced the good stuff, once you've experienced the true best thing, there's there's no comparison. Once you have experienced the best thing, once the love of God in Christ has been shed abroad in your heart by grace through faith, you realize that the happy of the world is a very insufficient and costly happy which actually strips away from you the real happy, which the Bible calls joy. And this is the battle of which you and I are frontline soldiers. I speak to all of you in part, right? But then I am particularly speaking to our men as those who lead their families, as those who lead this church. You are the ones who carry this battle forward in the hearts and minds of this generation. You are the ones who see the victory of joy on the horizon and must slay that dragon to gain that prize. And this does not mean that Christianity is some sort of journey unto comfort, some sort of emotional affirmation. Christianity is not simply a bunch of good feelings wrapped up in soft words and careful affirmations. John is writing these things to men who have overcome the wicked one through Christ. and have been given the tools necessary to fight the battle for righteousness. And the call is to put on the armor of God and to fight it. And the world offers a tremendous promise of pleasure. The allures of the world are powerful. Sin and its allures in the heart, powerful. You're going to struggle against them. And by the way, you every one of you, myself included, we are going to struggle against the temptation to sin, the allures of sin, until the day we die. Make no mistake. Don't fool yourself into thinking anything different. But it isn't a a battle against fear or shame or condemnation. Jesus took your fear on the cross. Jesus took your shame on the cross. Jesus took condemnation on the cross. And if you have if, if you have oriented yourself properly to these things, that, he, that the handwriting of ordinances that were against us were nailed to his cross, then that's not the battle we're fighting. Those things are already done. We're fighting a battle for the heart. Christ took our shame. He took our fear. He took our condemnation. And he offers to you in its place joy and eternal life. But for you who are in Christ... It isn't a battle against fear, shame, condemnation. It's a battle for joy. Unto joy. That's the battle that we're fighting. Just stay close to our Savior. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. To walk with Him. To to abide in Him. To lay up that treasure in heaven. And it's a reward made all the sweeter by the tremendous cost that Christ paid for us to win it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And you know what? It's going to cost you something too. 
It will. It's going to ask of you some discipline, some temperance. It's going to ask of you submission, humility. It's going to ask of you the principles that Christ manifested and exhibited in his life. But we fight with this assurance that there's coming a day when the war will be over and we're already on the winning side. We fight with this assurance that we serve the one who has already appeased the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus Christ. You will not face that wrath. 1 John 2, 2 said it. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. The battle you fight is for the rewards of eternal life. It's for the honor of your Savior, the rewards of His kingdom. Because you have already known Him who is from the beginning. You have already overcome the wicked one. Men, be the spiritual warrior God has built you to be. Hone the spiritual weapons that are at your disposal. Put on that helmet of salvation, that breastplate of righteousness, that belt of truth, the boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace, as Ephesians chapter 6 describes it. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Plant your feet in the kingdom of heaven against those things that are in this world and fight. Stand. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the wicked one. That's what John said. So fight and win. Fight and win against the lust of the flesh. Fight and win against the lust of the eyes. Fight and win against the pride of life because he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.